Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Insight Meditation for more than 20 years and have been teaching for 10. Her root teacher is Ruth Dennison, who was empowered by the great meditation master Ubakin of Burma. She has also studied with Dr. Rina Sarkar at CIIS and Dr. Thinthin in daily life practice. She is the founding teacher of the Lesbian Buddhist Sangha in Berkeley. Welcome back, Kim. Thank you. Hi, guys. <laughs> it's very nice to be back. Um, I'm going to add that with my, um, there's about 10 year lag in that, so I'm going <laughs> to. It's like more like, you know, just add 10 and everything. Um, <laughs> Let's see. Oh, and also I'm thinking of starting a private practice in Berkeley because I'm moving back from some of my um, straight jobs in the world. Um, so you may be hearing about that. More of a transpersonal sort of approach to therapy, which probably wouldn't surprise you. <laughs> so. so this is going to be a bit of a travelogue combined with Dharma. I'm calling it the spirituality of travel. Um, recently, some of you may have realized I often try to bring things here that I'm actually going through or things that I've recently experienced and then bring Dharma practice and theory into it. 
and kind of make sense of it all because as we all know, really the practice is our lives, right? And it's about integrating as much dharma, whatever that means to us, into almost every moment. And for me, I'm a great traveler and I love to travel. And I have been doing that since I was young. And um, so since I came off of a really exciting trip this summer, I thought I would try to talk some about how I integrated the Dharma in the moment and how I've been doing that since I've been back and share that some of, some of that with you. So I need to set the scene a little bit in that it was a two-week trip to France and I went with a close friend. We were both lesbians, still are. <laughs> and um, <laughs> at least when I last checked with her. Um, and we um, were lucky to have um, some time with two other lesbians, who one American and one French, who live in France. And they were part of our experience and were able to take us around, and um, especially the one who lives there was able to really open up the experience. I've been there before, I do speak French, so I had some sense of it, but this was really special. So I wanted to kind of set the scene. We went to Paris for a while. We went to Tours, for those of you who don't know, that's a smaller city in the center of France, in the Loire Valley, which is the big chateau place where everybody goes to look at all the kings and queens' constructions. <laughs> and um, very beautiful, beautiful area, very well known for its wine country. And then we spent the last week in Brittany, which is a very different culture. You may know it's a Celtic. Actually, people still speak the Celtic language there. There's a lot of history, right, between Normandy and Brittany and England for many, many years, things like the Hundred Years' War, things like that. Um, and it was a seacoast on the Atlantic, right, and a fishing village. So a couple of the experiences I'll talk about happened in that context. So probably many of you travel. Um, I'm kind of picking that neutral word for it. Uh, people sometimes say I'm taking a spiritual pilgrimage, right? Or I'm going on a journey, or the mundane word I'm taking a trip to, right? But in all those words, I think there's a lot of ability to sort of plan and, and sort of make an intention, right? When we go on a trip. And it can be a very practical one, kind of goal-oriented, Right, I want to see this, I want to make sure I go to this museum, you know, maybe I want to have an experience with food or culture. Um, but from my experience, no matter what I think my goal is or, you know, the plan, <laughs> um, travel is a different world, right? And depending on the degree of difference that you're, you know, in spontaneity you're going to integrate in your trip, it can be somewhat unexpected what happens. And of course I would recommend that you lean to that side of it. <laughs> Don't plan too much. Because I think it is a real experience, any kind of trip, but a particularly one abroad, to uh, really experience ourselves um, in a kind of a spiritual integrative way. Many people use the language of quest even, right? You've heard that? So those people really set a spiritual intention. Right? I'm going on a quest. I, sometimes they don't know what they're looking for, but some kind of spiritual evolution or something like that. So it can be a location right, that, that somehow holds meaning for us, a, a country, a culture, uh, maybe even a specific landmark, right, like a sacred mountain, something like that. Um, it could be actually man-made, 
right? Like a temple or a construction or art even, right? There's a lot of spiritual art. All, I mean, it's so rich when you really think of it. Um, some people, when they actually have a spiritual, strong spiritual practice, actually go after, right, the steps or the places where their teacher, who's now on another plane, right, like the Buddha, for example, lived, right? So there's many people that make, oh, northern India, a kind of a quest. Um, for people that are Christian or Jewish or Muslim, there's other places. I and mean, look at Jerusalem alone, you know, the, the meaning that that has for people. And then ancient sites, not so much what's left, but what used to be also, right? Like I made an amazing, um, what I did call a pilgrimage to Crete years back, and I don't know what, if you know much about that, but that's sort of the Bronze Age kind of place where there was a whole other, um, more matriarchal, more equally balanced between men and women spiritual culture um, that was just thriving and very peaceful in its time, and so for me, as a woman, it was important to go there, and it was very moving. I think also there can just be a felt connection, sort of elemental connection to places, like a certain body of water, you know, I have to see this lake or something, um, or I have to experience this volcano, or, you know, the fire element. It can, of course, be earth, all kinds of beautiful earth places that have a certain energy for us, and even air. I've heard people say, and I'm not so familiar with this, but there's certain breezes or wind storms that happen in certain places on the planet, and when you go there, you can you hear things or experiencing things differently. So it can be on so many levels. But the connection to the Dharma, for me, really comes through this issue of the root of suffering that the Buddha talks about, and one of the ways of understanding, of course, is the clinging aspect, or needing things to be a certain way. Grasping after certain things, which you're all familiar with this probably, and then clinging to them once we get them, right? Needing, needing it to solidify in that way. So you can kind of see what I'm leading up to. <laughs> Traveling isn't really the best thing to be doing, if that's what your idea is. Because, in fact, there's a lot of unpredictability, right, about traveling. So I see it more as an opportunity to break conditioning, right, and to break your patterns. And whether we set that up ahead of time, you know, I'm going to a certain culture because I want to be different and experience something differently, or whether we're just kind of surprised by what happens, and even when we do set it up, right, it will, it will challenge us, right? Um, and there can be a certain kind of dukkha, you know, that's the Pali word for suffering, uh, that comes with this unpredictability or change that we might not expect while traveling, right? It can be a positive thing in a way, like uh, the opposite of dukkha being sukha, like you can see an amazing sunset or stumble on this just gorgeous village you know, that you didn't even know was there. All these things can happen. Um, and then also they can not happen, that you make the turn and the, it wasn't the right turn, right? Or it's too late, or the museum is closed, or for me, you're in the train station and you're on the wrong track. You know? I don't know if you travel much in Europe with the trains. They're absolutely <coughs> amazing, 
right? And wonderful. But you kind of got to know the system, right? Just like an airport. I finally figured out it's like the airport. But it took me a while, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, because it's exactly the same. There's a giant board and everything's listed. And if you just pay attention. But I just wasn't as familiar with the modern train system. Um, so we were standing on a track and there's no train, you know? <laughs> And I think that my mindfulness practice <laughs> really helped me to realize that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not getting, you know, I was a little more present, you know, than the other person. You know, we have 10 minutes and there's no one here. <laughs> and that's unusual. <laughs> and so I was able to find my way out of it. I'm, I'm kind of making a joke of it, but see what I'm saying? These little things, um, these unpredictable things could have been, could have, they're objects for our awareness, put it that way. And for... They arise in a positive way, I think, when we're traveling, in many beautiful surprises and moments. And then there's the disruption that can also happen if we're solidifying things and we're expecting things to be a certain way, which is what tendency, right? Um, traveling can be a great practice. So I said there's unpredictability, there's change that happens, there's surprises. And I also think, for me... Um, as I prepare for a trip, especially when it gets really close, there's a certain kind of um, heightened um, feeling or sense that kind of starts to happen. There's a kind of a dreading about whatever that I could imagine could go wrong. And then there's all this kind of excitement thing. Oh, I'm finally going, wow, you know. <laughs> and all the stuff you have to do to prepare, of course. And so if you think about the Dharma... Um, one of the teachings is to be very aware of our sense-based experiences, right? That's, that's the second and third maybe foundation of mindfulness, to really get it that our mind-body process is telling us or signaling things to us all the time. We just need to be there, right, for them, to read them. And that's what a lot of the body-based practices are about. So I think, again, this kind of heightened vigilance that one can have when one's traveling, can be even a little nervous in the train station or somewhere, um, also is an opportunity, right? Depending on how you use it to realize that you have kind of like being opened up by some kind of drug or something. You, you have this, oh, this anticipation and this open-heartedness. So naturally, in a way, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a more childlike, right? open-heartedness. So maybe in a way we become more naturally mindful, more naturally alert to what's happening. Increasing awareness of what's important and what's not also. If it's not a very short trip and you start moving into something, you begin to see you're making choices, right, about what's really important here and where you really want to go and what you really, who you really are and what, what's important. So in a way we're challenged but I think we're also charmed by the unexpected. Now that's in our lives, of course, all the time, right? Um, but these kind of trips set us up for it. So in spiritual travel, there can be a goal or a destination, but being present for the journey is what really counts, right? And people say that about your life. But again, this is a real constructed moment that you can focus on. One experience I had that uh, the four of us were 
in the Loire Valley, in Tours, well, actually in Chinon, outside of the city. And um, Brigitte, who was the French woman, was trying to look for this little chapel that she had heard about, and there was a reason we wanted to go there specifically. And um, she finally finds it. So it's one of those things where we go on that little roads and we make turns and we don't know where we're going. And I was thinking, oh, whatever, you know. <laughs> and she turns it and parks, like in a place that looked like nowhere to me, near a little woods or something. It's, okay, I'm sure it's down here. You know, okay. So we walk down there, and eventually there's a little brick sort of pathway, and the area opens up, and we're on the side of a mountain, really, or really a, small, a hill, we would call it. And there's this chapel that's somehow built into the hillside that you could almost walk by if you didn't kind of see the doorway and there's some trees, sort of. That's it, that's it. <laughs> Knocks on the door and uh, nobody answers. And now it's already 7 o'clock at night. Right. Of course, it's light there still. This is summertime. And she says, oh, it's probably open. I'm thinking, open? <laughs> and she opens it and it's open. And there's a few, couple of people in there looking at this um, sort of fresco, beautiful kind of um, image inside, which I won't get into today, but that was the reason we were there. And... Um, then a couple of my friends start walking off to the side. Now, this space couldn't have been bigger than maybe half this room. So it's, it's a really small, ancient kind of chapel. And then there's this little archway and kind of like a, I don't know, a little hallway going along to the rocks. And I thought, well, I'm going to follow them. Where are they going? We walk in there, and suddenly my sense um, of space changed. And I actually used my Dharma practice. I, I, I took some breaths and I thought, am I, am I scared? Or, you know, something's shifting here, you know? And I thought, no, this feels okay, but some, there's an energy or something, and I'm walking along. It wasn't very far, maybe just to back, the back of the room, maybe, was curving around. And now it was very small, and I looked to my right, and there was this kind of oh, passageway, but you couldn't really walk down there, and a little light at the end. And at the end, there was this body of water that was somehow lit up. It was um, almost, the, almost the color of this cloth, a little lighter blue-green. And I looked at this thing. It looked like a jewel or something. And I burst into tears, you know. And I'm not the kind of girl who does that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, I can do it. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I did it. <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's not that, oh, wow, look at, you know, that kind of stuff. It, it was just happened, you know. And then, so again, be with us. You know, and I was a little embarrassed because my friends were standing off to the side. and um, I just let these tears come. And what I got from it, basically, was that, first of all, kind of a relief that this was still there. Secondly, a deep, deep sadness that I had taken so long to come back here, you know, those kind of feelings. And um, I just let it be, you know, I didn't try to get into, oh, well, why is that? Is this a past life? You know, why, why is this is a Christian thing? Like, what's going on? You know, just being with it. But then I turned to my friends, and I just grabbed them and, and held them, and only for a minute or two, and even though this was a public, you know, not a, a lot of people, there were still a couple of tourists, I think, that were or strangers that were coming up the hall. So I just moved back, and I thought, well, I'll get to go back later. Turned out I didn't get to, but 
um, to me, that, that's what I'm talking about. How when you open up for a journey like this, a spiritual kind of um, travel, that our practice really, really sort of aids us as far as being there for it and being intuitive and staying with it and not being either scared or threatened or not wanting to go off on this journey with a woman who I didn't really think was going anywhere, you know, kind of thing. Later on I found out, because there turned out to be a person there who was actually going to close up soon, who was like a docent, was somebody from the local village who knew the story of the place. And she actually told me that this was a pagan well from really ancient times before the Christians came or the Romans, and that the local people had seen it as a healing well, and it was particularly um, dedicated to seeing, that if you drank or put this water on your eyes that you could see more clearly. And that it was boarded up for many, many centuries once the Christians came, and people had thought it had been destroyed somehow, but miraculously, in more modern times, when some more liberal Christian person got there and decided that they should open up the place, they found it again, and the structure was still intact, and that um, the local people remembered that, that the Christians went there on St. John's Day, which is the 24th of June, um, to pray for a while, in between this boarding and up and unboarding and boarding and up. And um, then at one point they didn't allow anybody to go there anymore, especially on St. John's Day. <laughs> well, that's summer solstice. St. <coughs> John's Day is a corruption of summer solstice, really. And it all makes sense. People would go there, right, to this well, at the height of light, the longest day of the year, right, for reasons for seeing better. So this was a, you know, something I knew nothing about, that apparently it's kind of only a local thing that people know about. And I wouldn't have gone there if I hadn't been more open and seeing it all more from a deep, more mindfully aware place. Another part of this is that um, two of the women who I went with actually had a more goal-oriented thing they were doing. And I'll just talk about one of them today. Um, but hers was she was looking for Joan of Arc. And I only found this out maybe a week before she left, that she had been reading about Joan of Arc, and um, she thought this was a great lesbian character. <laughs> Not that she was a lesbian, but, you know, the warrior and the leader. And, and um, you know, I thought, well, I guess, you know, so... And, I, and we actually went, it turned out synchronistically that Touraine, this La Loire River Valley, is one of the places where she spent a lot of time. And there were a lot of places that you could actually go and see where she had heard voices or had spoken to the Dauphin, the, the guy who she made king, you know, and where she had spoken to her armies and things like this. And there was one particular story that we followed only because my friend was so into this. Um, that there was another teeny little chapel in a different town. And the story goes is that's where St. Catherine spoke, well, didn't speak to Joan there because St. Catherine was disembodied. <laughs> but there were voices that Joan heard of St. Catherine who were telling her that she could find her sword 
to lead the armies in this church. And came true that she did. And we actually were there. And so it was just, it was some kind of integration in a certain way of ancient stories in a very real way. And allowing myself to follow this story, you know, my friend, that turned out to be really very deeply meaningful. And by, by following like an individual, in other words, in our tradition, it would be Buddha or past Buddhas or... I have a friend who went to Puto Island. I don't know if you know that, but on a search for Kuan Yin, a quest to be with people who worship Kuan Yin and goddess of compassion. Um, in this case, it, it turned out to be sort of similar for me. And to really try to integrate after a while the qualities of this woman, very much like we would integrate the qualities of, say, Kuan Yin or the Buddha, by being there. Right? And the actual land and walking in the places where these people walked. So um, I found that Joan's faith, her trust in herself, right? And her spiritual path, which was from very, very um, peasant class. So to be able to talk to kings, you know, and to do this kind of thing was quite out of the ordinary. So it was really her spiritual belief system and her, her dedication to practice, as the way we would say it, I think, that, that drew her forward into history in this way. Another um, episode I had that was very similar to that um, was that Bridget eventually took us to Brittany um, and her family, part of her family still lives there. I didn't know that. Her mother actually had a house there. And the way that she talked about her culture and the way she exposed it to us, and I'm sure you've had those experiences in other cultures, made it come alive in a certain kind of way that it couldn't have and <coughs> drew things out of us that it never would have, I, I think. And one day I was talking about how I had Celtic ancestors and I have a hard side of my family that's English, and, but I'd always been more drawn to France, and it just came up in a conversation. And she said, oh, well, we have to go to the Standing Stones. I said, well, I can't, we can't go up to England. We could, actually. Said, no, 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 they're right here. I said, what do you mean they're right here? So I'm going to pass the postcard around. Um, it's too bad I didn't do a PowerPoint. That <laughs> <laughs> um, there are 2,500 at least standing stones that exist in Brittany, right near the Atlantic there. And just as dramatic, I imagine, although I've never been to England, to that part of England anyway, um, or more so in a certain kind of way than, than the British Celtic um, experience. And it was just so interesting to me to see how the French are treating that. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, those are the stones. You know? <laughs> and they will talk to you about history, but the spiritual part of it, you know, is, is, um, is quite separate, I think, for most people. And that gets back to their rejection of the Catholic Church and anything religious. And, and in a way, there are Buddhists that practice in Europe, as I'm sure you're aware of, and in France there, there are some, particularly through the Tibetan traditions. Um, but the common people you know, just see them as a very important historical thing that doesn't have any kind of spiritual significance, really. You know, I mean, maybe a little or something. And um, my experience of that, of course, was quite different. I, I, I felt like there was a synchronicity that was happening, that I was being led there, you know, in a certain kind of way that I never expected. Again, the unpredictability of life and the ability to share 
of yourself a lot of times leads us, especially when we travel, I think, because we go a little bit further, right? You know, we share ourselves. We have to talk to people. We have to get in there right, with people. And somehow things happen. Those of you who like to read travel books, you know, is it just about the places? Yeah, they're pretty, but it's really the connections, right, that we make. And I call that spiritual. I call that spiritual awakening in a lot of ways between people. So I had amazing, wonderful experience there. I felt very, very moved just by the fact of being led there. Um, and my experience also, um, telling it back to the French people, that was interesting, I just realized. They, they were sort of woken up a bit. Really? <laughs> you, know, you felt kind of an energy and, you know, you wanted to touch them. I mean, they're just rocks, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So it was... It was a really beautiful exchange in a, in a certain kind of way. Okay. Back to the Dharma. Um, I think that travel can be a really strong antidote. It can be a really strong antidote to um, Sankara Dukkha, which the, is the kind of suffering of uh, separateness. Um, sometimes we do feel sort of alone when we travel, right? Depending on how we do it. But then we're kind of forced not to be alone, right? Because we have to ask for directions, or we get bored, or someone just approaches us, right? Um, and the real sense of no separate self, I feel, that they talk about in the Dharma, this issue of self or interdependence, right, can really, 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 really be experienced, right? through travel, through spiritual orientation to travel. Um, travel in search of places or connections to our ancestors as well can reveal a deep and almost cellular sense of connection to humanity. The woman that I didn't mention so much was doing that more. She had an ancestor, some queen, I think it was Eleanor of Aquitaine, ever heard of her? <laughs> was some ancient person that has a lineage in her family. So it was interesting to be with one who was really going after the saint, you know, or the, the Buddha, whatever. And the other one actually had a person whose tomb she could stand by, right? Um, but it was the same thing for me. It was this connection, you know, with, with the, the cycle of life, of life, you know, birth, as the Buddha says, birth, life, death, and regeneration. You know, whether it's physical, you know, from actual DNA that she may still carry, right, from Eleanor of Aquitaine, or whether it's just more a felt sense of a spiritual practice. If you think of the Dharma, we talk about lineage a lot, right? Some people take it very seriously, right? What is transmission, especially in the Zen sense? Uh, what is that? You know, that is an actual, I see it as an actual energetic exchange um, between, say, a student and a teacher. It can happen in the moment, it can happen over years, and eventually you're asked to teach. You're given permission to teach, right? To me, that's a spiritual connection, and I do do talk, I talk within the Vipassana Ubakin tradition about lineage and about how me, as a white lesbian feminist, you know, had a European 
um, woman teacher who was about 25 years older at least than me who brought the tradition from Burma, right, who sat with Uba Kin, who was actually a Burmese civil servant. He wasn't actually a monk, right? And that's very interesting because a lot of us here in the West have used this not in a monastic order, right? And we've created songs like your own, right? Like my own also. And then he actually was transmitted the Dharma from a farmer. Now that's already kind of merchant class, really, if you want to think of it that way, a rich farmer, but who had had a lot of tragedy in his life and went to seek the truth, which by that time, now we're in the 1800s, was really a path that people did, right? They just left home, sort of like the Buddha, if they could, you know, and left their wife and children there with the farm, <laughs> and they went off to find the truth, right, if they were hurting. And then he found, he found Lady Saidao, he found a very, very educated monk, right, in Burma, who was waking up to the fact that already the Dharma was dying and that he needed to translate everything into English and into, from Pali and into Burmese, both. And that's the lineage. That's the far back as my lineage can go. And the more I talk about all this, the more I realize how deep these connections are. Do I need to travel to Burma? Right? That's, that's the connection with travel. Perhaps, you know, I'm waiting to see if it happens. You know, my karma seems to be more in Europe right now, so I don't know. But it may. You know, I know two spiritual teachers from Burma, and they may go, and if they go, I'll try to go with them, but I may not have to. It's, it's always a question, right? But if I do, I'm sure that I'll get into even more in touch with these things. So, past um, our connections imagined or intuitive connections, um, however we want to understand these things, it does provide us with a felt sense of interdependence. And that's what I meant by the lineage piece. And a oneness with all of humanity that I find is very comforting. Right? To me it's very comforting to realize that we've all been doing these things. It can also be depressing. depends on how you want to look at it. But we've all been doing building civilizations, right? And then kind of destroying them or let them fall apart or nature takes over. And then we rise again, right? And we, we do something again. And each time, some people would say we spiritually evolve, you know? Some, some teachers would say that's the point of all this. Um, through travel, I think you can feel some of that. You can really feel that struggle for truth and, and um, the dilemmas around it. Okay. Cause and effect, karma, right? That's what I'm talking about. It's, it's not the study of history really, the study of karma, when it comes down to it. And for those of you, I know there's um, some of you here that are interested in history, and to me, history, again, is what I said. It's a reflection of, of a process, right, of seeking for truth and for beauty and for love, um, as, you know, misguided as we can be. So I'm going to try this last one here. <laughs> um, I've tried to explain this to some other friends of mine. They kind of just look at me 
So, um, you know, you get that glassed over look. Um, but, but I know you'll get a sense of it. You may have already experienced it. Um, one of my drama teachers travels a lot also, Lama Paulden in Fairfax, and she, she explained it to me, and um, it worked for me, so I'm going to try to share it. It's simple, and it's not simple at all. So um, my partner didn't go with me to France. She stayed back, and I wanted to communicate with her a lot. So we FaceTimed, right, on our cell phones, on our iPhones, almost every day. Okay. So now it is 3 p.m., right, in California. And she's going to try to get in contact with me, and it's midnight in, say, Paris or France. And it's dark. It's, it's really dark, <laughs> and it's light, right, over there. Nine hours difference. She pushes a button, right, on her phone, and I appear. <laughs> As I push mine. However, there's nine hours difference. Everybody would agree to that, right? <laughs> they would not argue, you know, and it's the truth on the relative plane. That's how we can even operate, right? We created this. We had sundials before. We were just trying to figure out how we could relate to each other on the relative plane, right? However, in that moment, is there nine hours difference? No, there's not. So where are we? Who's talking? You know, what's going on here? Right? So I would say, that's your present moment. And in fact, that is, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, the only moment. And all the rest of it, as you know very well, is made up. What I just said 10 minutes ago is gone. It will never come back, even though it's recorded. <laughs> you know, that moment is gone. And what's going to happen as we walk out of here? We don't really know. Now, I know that you've been told this a million times, right? What? This FaceTime thing or this Skype thing. Just do it, you know, even if it's not your thing. Especially with somebody, I would say, that's pretty far away. Because if they're in California, it's a little harder to get it. But when they're nine hours away and you push that button and you see it's dark outside over there. <laughs> and that's what you expected. And it's light hour you are, and you're talking to this person right now. You have to realize that you're in another place. And that's the place we live. Okay, so that's the best explanation I can do <laughs> of trying to relate the Dharma, right, to spiritual travel. This didn't happen the first time we you know, FaceTime. It was about the third or the fourth or the fifth time I began to think, whoa, what's going on? You know, how can this be happening? Yes, it's a technical marvel, but it's, it's more than that. So, awakening to a heightened awareness of my own spiritual path as an individual happens a lot for me, and I think that's why we do these kinds of trips. Um, but also my connection to my fellow travelers, because I did have people, as I explained in the beginning, that I was watching, you know, and going with, and they, they were kind of on a little quest of their own. Um, and then, of course, my connection to others on the path while I'm there. You know, the Buddha had to leave home to achieve realization. And they call it that, leaving home, that's what they say, right? You know, and that 
it wasn't just a cultural thing. That's the myth, or, or the true story, depending how you look at it, that he left one environment, right, that was very structured and pleasant, too, into another environment that was not structured at all, the outside of the palace, right, that had its beauty, but also its serious challenges, right? And somehow he knew that he had to do this, right, in order to achieve enlightenment. I don't know if I'm going to get enlightened through travel, <laughs> but I, it just provides me with so much. For me, travel holds within it a guarantee almost, or at least a strong invitation to practice. So by challenging our willingness and our ability to receive these many gifts of the unexpected present moment, um, we can really use these these experiences as an offering. Really. So thank you. If it's okay, I, I um, think we have maybe, what, 10 minutes at least, 10, 15 minutes? About 10. Yeah. I'd like you to just take five minutes to turn to a neighbor or so and um, share something about what I just said about travel. You know, a challenge you might have had or a spiritual moment you might have had um, or how you react to the idea of this. Can you do that? Okay. Just pick somebody, anybody. <laughs> Sometimes I'll be describing an experience to someone and I'll realize that, you know, this is really, you know, this is pretty mundane experience. Mm -hmm. And it's like looking at the Grand Canyon. You know, you can go there and you can see a big hole or you can see a marvelous experience. And the mindfulness says that, you know, if we really begin to recognize the source of all this, we really begin to recognize that we're the ones who put into this what's there. And that's really one of the most marvelous things about having these kinds of experiences because we can really go there and have an experience of the way we perceive the way we color, the way we live our lives, you know, and, and perhaps the way we've lived our lives. Yes. Anyone? Tom? You know, it made me realize, uh, your talk made me realize that when I do travel and get out of my routine, it reawakens, it makes me feel younger because yes. I think it reawakens this sense of capability to solve new problems, you know, whether it's the train station or whatever. Just like when we were kids, everything was new. 
right. learning how to get from here to there, ride a bike or whatever. But it sort of makes me feel more capable. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, sure. David, and then count this. I, I, I have this phrase that's probably this is called vacation mind. And, and what, what, you know, you could be in, in Paris or another city and you're not familiar with it, and you're walking down the street and you notice everything. You notice the buildings, it's all fresh, it's all new. And, and I'm always thinking, oh, I gotta bring vacation mind back to San Francisco where I'm not just walking down the street planning and I miss the sun and the beautiful buildings and the, and the, the people and more aware, more in, more in the present. That's why I travel so much, to try to remember that, you know, and then hold it as long as I can and then get on a plane or something. Well, I um, was reflecting that when I travel and I see beautiful places, um, eventually it sinks in that Mother Earth is beautiful everywhere. And to be privileged enough to see how beautiful it is in one country and how beautiful it is in another country and just sink back into the roots of our sustenance, which is Mother Earth, is a great thing. You often, living in one place, you start that to get for granted. You know, although it's pretty hard here in San Francisco. <laughs> yes. Hi, I really appreciate your, uh, your offering today. It's exactly what I needed to hear. Um, what comes to mind is that, as I was sharing with Mark, sharing with Mark, um, for me, this experience is something that uh, happens because I place intention and I have a mind, uh, I don't know how long ago it started, but I have a mind that has been exercised in this. So I, I'm, when I traveled to Coos Bay, Oregon to study higher consciousness with Ken Kais, the late Ken Kais, my, my arrival in the town itself already sparked the beginnings of a great story. <laughs> Just the arrival. Um, so I, I put it out there that it's, there's something about exercising these neural pathways that actually cause it to happen more and more and more and more. It happens to anyone and everyone. It's not just the Buddha, it's not, it's everyone. So, thank you for reminding me of that. Pardon me, and we'll have your last comment. Uh, thank you so much for your sharing this. Uh, again, for me, it just clicked so many clickers. Um, <laughs> I'm just so fortunate to travel a lot and for long periods of time. And, you know, it's evolved over the time. Now I like to go and like stay for a couple months and volunteer in places and get into the culture, but also to get to know the people and hopefully they get to know some of me in our culture. But for me, it's also allowed me to be aware that, you know, I can go to the South Asia and study with some Buddhist people or go to India and study that. But for me, it's also like everyday stuff. When you have a smile or a glance, a, a guy pulling a bullock by hand, you know, or a beggar, or, you know, just just an ordinary connection where you just realize we're all connected and we're all the same and everybody's trying to deal with the same thing. And that for me is what's just so warming and just 
makes me feel so wonderful walking down the street and being able to give a smile to somebody. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm really grateful for travel and all the things it's brought us. I mean, it's brought us Wiccan's teachings, you know, and the ability to learn from people all over the world. And I can resonate with this the way your mind is shaped when you put yourself in a whole different culture. Mm -hmm. And in this conversation, I'm having this nagging sort of feeling of um, how unsustainable global travel is to our planet, and how um, I have this kind of fear of of, of associating with being spiritual. Not to say that it isn't, but also to say that it's really um, totally unsustainable. Whether we journey far or just journey far our homes to the Sangha or journey within, um, thank you, Carol, for really opening up that um, pathway for us to look at today. Thank you. Uh, next week's speaker will be, once again, the Sangha's David Lewis. He will present part two of the series, The Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And that will be on uh, the feeling tones, sort of what Carol mentioned today about mindfulness in that area. And so look for David next week. Uh, The Pali word for generosity is dana. And dana is what we need to sustain the sangha. We ask for your generosity. Uh, to help sustain the speakers, the uh, facilities, the Larson Street Youth Program, the outreach to prisoners with news- newsletters, and a suggestion donation of $10 for Donna is very appreciated. And the host will walk around with the bowl to receive your offerings. Is there a host today? Where is he there? I'll be walking around. <laughs> so, um, yeah, please stay and enjoy the fellowship of the Sangha. Um, we have refreshments. There's hot water for tea. If you have tea, please wash your cup with hot soapy water. Um, there are uh, things to, uh, some vegan treats. Um, and at, uh, there's a sign-up sheet for pe- new people who would like to uh, um, add their name to the, our mailing list. And um, at 12.30, some people gather at the front door and go to lunch together. And it's open to anybody to join in. So just gather at the front door at 12.30. Any other announcements? Well, today is the day when our newsletter goes out. Uh, normally, Jack Busby organizes the mailing party, but he is traveling in Italy right now. Um, so I'm going to be doing it in his absence. So I need about eight to ten volunteers to you know, stuff envelopes and fold newsletters and put stamps and labels on them. Um, could I get a show of hands of people who can see that? When did this take place? It starts in about ten to fifteen minutes after after this. I mean, yeah. ten, ten, fifteen minutes from now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So can I see that show of hands again? One, two. Three, four. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And um, do you have an announcement? Yeah.
Sure, even though your hand is up there. <laughs> yeah, you can bet. Okay, sure. I'll turn Nathan here. Two announcements. Um, uh, tonight in Berkeley, there is a chanting circle uh, led by Doug Von Koss. Uh, it's at the Finnish Brotherhood Hall. You can find out more information at menschant.com. Uh, the second announcement is you may have noticed on the bulletin board my smiling face and a request. Uh, the request is support around uh, where I am to dwell in the future. Uh, this weekend will be my departure from a, a home that I've dwelled in as a rent renter for 17 years uh, due to the owner moving eviction. Uh, the flatmates and I are moving on, and I am still yet to determine a place uh, to call home. So I offer to you, man, that I'm a uh, lifelong student of uh, higher consciousness and mindful living and would welcome uh, being uh, your student and uh, community member if you have a space in your home. And uh, please get in touch with me as uh, I'll be uh, looking forward to finding that new community of people to live with. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, last week um, we had a fabulous retreat and I just want to acknowledge Michael Murphy again for doing such a great job in making it happen. And uh, David Lewis gave luminous talks about karma. We were all greatly edified. And Tom and Jerry provided uh, essential <laughs> support <laughs> services. <laughs> it, was a, it was a wonderful weekend. So if you went there, you know something special. And Michael, thank you again for levitating us. If we could all circle around our dedication. Please remember Johnny, Harvey, and Benjamin are new to the sound when you're in the lobby today. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.